we're gathered here today to discuss humanism, some contemporary ethical theory exhibits skepticism regarding both humanism and human rights discourse. Although there is a tradition of critical theory that calls into question Eurocentric humanism while maintaining the need for a new humanism, I have in mind Amis Césaire, Franz Fanon, Sylvia Winder, and Edward Said. Increasingly, there's a group of post-humanists making a call to abandon the human as an aspirational ethical category. Further, the aforementioned humanists, as well as the post-humanists, take different approaches to claims to human rights, with some maintaining a faith in human rights, for instance, Said, and others wanting to strategically abandon such claims as part of the broader refusal of the category of the human. This interdisciplinary panel will continue this critical conversation by unpacking ideas of humanism, human rights, cosmopolitanism, and resistance through raising the following questions. Who counts as human? And what and whom does the category of the human foreclose? What is a right? What political paths and imaginaries do rights claims open and exclude? What is the relationship between cosmopolitanism and humanism? And could humanism open or close paths of resistance? Having raised some of these questions we will discuss today, I want now to turn over to our panelists to ask them to introduce themselves and their work in the order of our presentation. So Kat and Sharza, and then Rachel. Kat. Thank you so much, Benjamin. Thank you so much for this invitation to this panel today. Um, this is an incredibly important topic, one that I'm happy to discuss. Just a little bit about my background. Um, I'm an anthropologist and associate professor of anthropology and peace studies at the Kroc Institute at the University of Notre Dame. I've been working on issues of youth and youth rights um, after post-war in Sierra Leone, which ended in 2002. And I've been working on this since 2003. And the paper I'm going to deliver today is essentially a sort of culmination of thinking about how Sierra Leone and young people in Sierra Leone grapple with the right to education, um, which is something that I've studied in both its formal, vocational, and informal context for about the last 15 years. Um, and so that will bring me to the start of the paper, which I now call Education and Hegemonic Whiteness in the African Post-Colony, Schooling, Apprenticeships, and Child Rights in Sierra Leone. And I start with a quote from Basil Davidson, who wrote The Black Man's Burden. I quote, it may be fairly easy to understand that new nation states emerging from imperial or colonial oppression have to modernize their institutions, their modes of government, their political and economic structures very well. But why then adopt models from those very countries or systems that have oppressed and despised you? So we started a carpentry shop, which sits on one of the main roads in the city of McKinney, the capital of the northern region of Sierra Leone. When I sit down with the master carpenter to talk about his business, a small boy, perhaps seven or eight years old, lingers in the background. As the carpenter, Mr. Kamara, and I talk about the increasing difficulty of getting wood to work with during the building boom, the boy picks up a piece of wood and a worn out patch of sandpaper and tries to sand it. Mr. Kamara stops our conversation briefly to show the boy how to utilize a longer stroke with his technique, even as the paper is not sufficiently rough to smooth out the small discarded bit of wood. I ask about the boy and Mr. Kamara smiles as he urges the boy to move to the back of the shop while he play works. He explains, this little one is interested in this work, so his parents send him, send him to me after school. Well, I don't think he likes school too much because on many days he's here in the morning, like today. I've had the police threaten to find me before for this boy being here when he should be in school. They told me, you're spoiling his rights, he should be in the classroom. I responded that I cannot force him to attend even if I drive him from my workshop. And this is a good age for him to start. His hands are learning, his mind is learning, and he can be of some small assistance to me and I can teach him the business. Though it was clear to Mr. Kamara 
of the benefits of starting an apprentice young, he acknowledged having to hide his young charge away from his shop front during school hours or face possible action from passing police. He went on, the little one is the youngest of them. I have other apprentices that are older that I have work openly. The apprentices of which he spoke were all teenagers and none were in school. They're all dropouts, he exclaimed, noting that while some of them had been driven out of school for failing the exam that would advance them to junior secondary school, others had attended until their parents could no longer afford the fees and began their apprenticeships after he cajoled them into the workshop. Two of them I saw just passing here and there doing nothing, so I called them into workshop to help me move these boards. The teenagers both stayed on and were learning steadily. This conversation illustrated a broader, pat broader pattern of interactions between Sierra Leone's ancient artisanal sector on one hand and classroom-based formal education on the other, with the latter becoming compulsory with the establishment of child rights policy in Sierra Leone in 20 2007. In the policy in which primary education was bolstered as part of the government's bid to modernize the country, child labor was also banned with children under the age of 13 legally prescribed from doing any domestic unpaid or paid labor allowing only light chores around the house from the age of 13. In spoiling the rights of his small would-be apprentice, Mr. Kamara was accused of both preventing the child's right to education and compelling him to perform unpaid labor. On paper, this seems like a cut and dry case of child rights violations. In practice, a very different picture emerges, one of an old tradition of skilling and socialization running afoul of a new policy that compelled children to sit in overcrowded classrooms with underpaid teachers, few learning supplies and desultory economic prospects. Sierra Leone has an extremely false, small formal sector and 70% formal youth unemployment with fewer than 1% of students who finish secondary education continuing on to a tertiary degree. Even though this is the case, parents in both rural and urban areas save and sacrifice to send their children to school because as many who lived in rural villages stated, we do not want our children to be backwards. Of the master artisans I spoke to, on the other hand, every single one of their journeymen had eventually found steady work, with many of them going on to start their own successful businesses. As most children in the developing world in general who successfully complete primary education cannot read at a fourth grade level and fail to find formal employment, these priorities and the dreams of education relieving one of backwardness appear to be amiss, even as the goal of universal education might seem laudatory. What I will argue here, however, is not simply that these priorities are ill-advised and that the dropouts are merely lucky to have landed on their feet in spite of their lack of formal education. I am instead arguing something much more insidious is happening with the government's emphasis on formal education in Sierra Leone. And the concomitant ideas that children who do not go to school or who are instead learning a vocation are damaged or condemned to be backward. That the right to education was enacted in Sierra Leone only through the instantiation of compulsory primary education and the banning of child labor reveals instead the persistence of hegemonic whiteness in the African post colony. As Davidson expressed in frustration, West African governments have persisted with the unthoughtful wholesale adoption of the very institutions that despised and oppressed African people under the guise of colonial development, which in this case neglects, constricts, and condemns the most profitable and stable economic sector. Early colonial policy in Sierra Leone emphasized formal education only for the children of the elite, whom British administrators groomed to do their bidding. In contrast, education for the rest was limited to educating the African to his place, in quotes, through teaching only farming and manual pursuits. Over time, this caused the social and political internalization of non-formal sector work, particularly skilled farming and artisanal work, as undesirable and backward. 
The implicit condemnation of skilled work, as opposed to credentialed schooling, is replicated across the developed world, from the racialization of vocational education as suited for Black people in the U.S. to its conflagration with slow learners in Australia and the United Kingdom. It is the pursuit of Euro-American standards of an educated population that pushes developing world governments to focus outsized energy and produce policy pushing formal education, as this is supposedly what real development looks like. That Sierra Leone cannot support universal formal sector employment, and that 99% of secondary school graduates are unemployed, reveals how the internalization of hegemonic whiteness in education policy continues to damage the African post-colony. It is the children who are supposedly driven from school at early ages or who slip through the cracks of the system that end up being the lucky ones. They often do sufficiently intensive apprenticeships to find steady employment, as opposed to the supposedly smart or adequately funded students who do complete secondary school and then have no prospects. As Mr. Kamara himself said, if you are unemployed and just passing here and there, it means you have no skills. Maybe you have an education, but you cannot do anything. If you are a skilled somebody, you can always find work. So I have a little bit about um, my research methods, which we can talk about um, at the end if anyone has questions on them, but typical ethnographic work of an anthropologist. So a bit of the history. Um, West Africa possesses a long history of skilled artisans being central to both ritual and economic life. Anthropologists have documented cross-culturally and through time the express need across social worlds for these artisans to start their training well before adulthood in order to obtain mastery in a wide set of skills and acquire the socialization and networks necessary to join the crafting elite. Apprenticeships have also been shown to increase the sense of capability and mastery of one's destiny among young people, to initiate young apprentices into the social networks and guilds that will support them over their lifetimes, and it involves a similar cultivation of critical cognition skills as formal schooling, only with the added bonus of those skills being situated in social practice rather than abstracted into classroom spaces. As education researchers Guy Claxton and Bill Lucas assert, the widespread belief that formal education is somehow superior to skilling and vocational education exists because of a myth perpetuated by Jean Piaget, a 19th century child development psychologist, who posited that education progress is based on moving away from practical and embodied tasks towards abstract and symbolic ones. That formal education is somehow superior in fostering cognition, and conversely, that skilling should be reserved for populations who are either incapable of fostering such cognition or equally, equally perniciously that it should be pushed on populations for whom advanced cognition is an undesirable goal is the legacy with which the African post-colony struggles. It's a legacy with profound ethical implications and one whose long history of explicit racism has colored the unmitigated desire expressed across the continent for more formal education. The central premise of this aim is that providing universal access to the education which was expressly withheld from people because of racist policies addresses and potentially reverses the damaging impact of those policies rather than implicitly supporting their central supposition, which is that other forms of learning are inferior and thus so are the people who practice them. Formal education had been introduced selectively by the colonial administration in Sierra Leone beginning in the coastal colony in the late 1800s. The first formal school outside of the capital of Freetown, which was called the Bow School for Boys, opened only for the sons and nominees of chiefs in 1906. The goal of educating only the chiefly class was part of the logic of indirect colonial rule, where a small elite was molded and groomed by the colonial authority to carry out the daily tasks of ruling on behalf of white administrators. Once schooled as honorary whites, chiefs and members of their customary court, 
were allowed to exploit and oppress their own people. Colonial policy prohibited people from moving out of their own ethnic areas and escaping from dictatorial chiefs, which effectively enabled despotism and preserved the privileges of the local elite class. At the same time, education for non-elite so-called Black Africans was limited to topics such as farming, animal husbandry, and hygiene, which according to education administrator H.S. Kigwin was designed to make them better Africans rather than imitation Englishmen. To quote him at length, the premature teaching of English so ignorantly clamored for by unrealizing people is, especially when accounted by bad teaching or by overemphasis on book English is fraught with definite harm. It is clear that it may become a force of actual disruption, a breaking down of home and local cohesion, and may be the cause of false pride and a disorganizing restlessness and insubordination amongst the growing youth. Excuse me for a second. This division of education between classrooms for the elite and workshops for the masses suddenly classified much of the skilled artisanal work that people had been carrying out for millennia the woodworking, masonry, weaving, and smithing as inherently second-class occupations suitable for natives. The post-colonial era saw evolutions within the institutions of formal schooling in Sierra Leone, but no change at all in its status as an elite institution that was beyond the reach of all but the most wealthy and well-connected families. Carolyn Bledsoe wrote extensively about how formal education in the 70s and 80s maintained its elite status through its rarity and selectivity, and the fact that the formal sector at the time was of a comparable size to the educated elite, essentially guaranteeing graduates successful entry into wage work. There was also a curious transformation of the supposed value of abstract thinking in local schools, as the knowledge teachers conveyed was treasured not because it was considered useful, but because it was rare, rendering the teachers akin to elder ritual specialists who held the keys to the gate of the cosmic world. In addition, children succeeded not because they were smart or hardworking, but because they had accrued the blessings of their teachers, effectively creating a socioeconomic network for themselves and their parents through the time they spent at school, rather than anything they actually learned there. These blessings could translate to social mobility for a lucky few poor children who managed to find sponsors, but usually only after years of suffering as educational migrants and also doing the bidding of foster parents or teachers as part of their experience. In this sense, formal education was taking on some of the qualities already extant in apprenticeships relationships, the passing on of rare closely guarded knowledge from masters to apprentices and apprentices only graduating with the chance of success in their own working lives if they possessed the blessing in the, of their master and the, forum, and the membership in the social network of what was effectively their guild. Tracing the history of master craftsmen and apprentices in West Africa is difficult partially because these are a mix of autogenous industries and those that trickled through the continent on ancient trade routes for which no origin can really be posited. The work of one's hands, according to the archeological record is fundamental to being human and contours of the whole of human history everywhere around the world. Craft guilds akin to those found in medieval Europe persisted in, persisted in many places in West and Central, Central Africa until the mid to late 20th century with the longest record of the master artisan class being closely tied to hereditary royal power present in the grass fields of Cameroon. After Sierra Leone's civil war officially ended in 2002, the flux of international aid organizations needing buildings, furniture, and local supplies provided much needed work for the local artisan sector, and many master craftsmen were able to restart their workshops in the wake of the war. However, the reintegration programs offered to ex-combatants by the United Nations helped perpetuate the notion of effective inferiority of skilled craft work to formal education. While children and teenagers were encouraged to re return to school, older ex-combatants were offered six months of vocational training as their reintegration. 
These training programs, insufficient as six months, even if high quality training was offered, was predicated on the notion that craftwork was a suitable distraction from fighting. The logic offered by a UN officer in charge of administering the program in 2004 was that the goal was not to train ex-combatants to be master craftsmen, but to get them away from the war and away from each other long enough to render them socially safe. In a candid interview, he expressed the notion that for older combatants, it was too late for them to learn anything useful, implying that craft work is not useful, and that their brains were not up to the task of schooling, and that they could only maybe learn something with their hands, as though craft work is the natural rather than the learned state of humans. Designing programs of only six months reveals the desultory knowledge that the Global North humanitarian workers had about the nature of apprenticeships and craft work. One can only assume that they thought that this skilling is easy and quick because their parting gift to graduates of these programs were toolboxes with which they were expected to start their own workshops. Unsurprisingly, none of the ex-combatants were either sufficiently skilled nor sufficiently socialized to become journeymen in their chosen craft, let alone start their own workshops. They remained almost universally unskilled and unemployed after reintegration, a testament to both the difficulty of achieving mastery in a craft and the wildly low opinion of what it takes to do so among NGO workers from the global north. So my ethnographic work in artisanal workshops revealed the incredibly high level of skill achieved through apprenticeships. Master craftsmen were previously legally allowed to take on apprentices in an organic way, with children or their parents expressing interest in a child entering the shop for the first time at any point after the age of seven. Just as occurs in formal schooling, apprentices showed different levels of acumen, interest, and focus, and while some slowly built up their skill over time and received the blessings of their master to start working on their own, others left the work in search of something more suitable for them. Several masters had at one point graduated journeymen who had begun in a different trade, and in doing something for which they lacked interest, had a better idea of the skill to which they were suited. This is just like picking a favorite subject in school. Each craft had its own bar for what constitutes success and an apprentice who was ready to move on. For the master mechanics that I spent time with, an apprentice was ready to call himself a fitter and work in a garage after three years of training. A fitter was not ready to strike out on their own until they were able to take apart and rebuild from parts, either a complete motorcycle or vehicle engine. Attaining this level of skill typically took five years with mastery achieved when apprentices knew how to substitute equivalent parts, do bush fixes on parts for which they lacked replacements, and inventively repair broken parts with insufficient tools. In my own experience, the mechanics of Sierra Leone were far more skilled, more creative, and more thoughtful in their approach to broken vehicle parts than their global north counterparts, largely because they had to be working in an industry for which insufficient or unavailable parts was the norm and no diagnostic equipment existed. Carpenters typically spent seven years learning to cut plain sand and finish furniture with simple hand tools and rudimentary measuring devices. Like the mechanics, they often displayed more skill, subtlety, and knowledge of wood than most Global North carpenters because they were unable to work with table saws, jigsaws, and other advanced equipment. Indeed, part of the low opinion that most Global North education experts have of craft work may also be down to the general de-skilling that has occurred with post-fortist labor in Europe and the U.S., where artisanal mastery is replaced by robotic assembly lines. The tailors in McKinney almost all worked on non-electric, pedal-powered singer sewing machines. One master tailor had had the benefit of being trained at a vocational workshop in Freetown in the 1980s after his father died and he had been forced to leave school in fourth grade. After 18 months of basic work, he was sent to apprentice to a tailor in McKinney and was blessed by his master after another three years of training. He eventually made enough money to open his own workshop and train apprentices, which he continues to try to do even as, as he said, youth are discouraged from doing this because they don't see it as a fine job. 
I had witnessed him on many afternoons sitting on the porch of his shop, talking with young people as they walked by. But in the six months of my work with him in 2012, he had not managed to convince any new young people to try tailoring. Part of the issue of convincing young people to go into skilled occupations was the stripping of legitimacy from artisanal work that had occurred with the child rights law. The United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child declares that education is the right of every child, but it is also quite clear that this education can comprise formal or vocational training. Vocational training is actually the translation of apprenticeships in the global, global north from skilling as a devolved process that takes place in workshops into a formal process that follows a curriculum over a series of years and involves classroom instruction and occasionally theory as a way of mimicking formal education. In its very conception, voc vocational education, as opposed to apprenticeships, already nods at the hegemony of formal schooling as superior to informal skilling. In spite of this, the government of Sierra Leone essentially undermined both apprenticeships and vocational education with the child rights law, insisting that no child should start work until over the age of 13 and insisting that only formal schooling fulfills the necessity for every child to be educated by attending school. This being the case, being in school became ideologically opposed to apprenticing because workshops were barred from issuing certificates that would serve as an equivalent marker of mastery to a school certificate. Master artisans complained that their journeymen were having trouble presenting themselves as qualified. Said one metal worker, why do you need to see a school certificate from these men I have trained? The certificate says they can do the work, but can they do the work? Ask this man to make a door out of these metal scraps and he can do it. He can produce it for you. Let that be the marker of his mastery. According to a carpenter who specializes in upholstered furniture, he doesn't need the government to allow him to issue certificates. Rather, he needs some of the money that was being channeled wholesale into formal education as recognition of the fact that he was picking up the slack from the government's failure to educate everyone. He explained, this is a difficult, skilled job, and I try to take on as many of these school dropouts as I can. But it was the government that drove them from school when they failed their exams, and now I am training them. But I can't just release them into the world, even if they are masters, because this job requires so much equipment and so many supplies. You cannot start it from nothing. Let the government help us, recognize us for taking the youth it despised and making them useful. Universally, the master artisans were clear that their jobs were secure, well-paid, and relatively immune to the economic ups and downs that govern the formal sector. As a different mechanic said, let the government say the form that formal education is better. When these students are still passing here and they're looking for someone to hire them as accountants, the fitters I have trained will be buying their own houses. However, he, like others in similar trades, also suffered the delegitimization of their trades through the physical side of the work. This came about in a conversation with a medical metal worker about uniforms for his apprentices. As he explained, the students in school are required to wear uniforms, these clean, bright colors that shows the world that they are students. My apprentices are in their own clothes doing this hard work and they are dirty and the work is rough. The clothes get torn and their hands get hard over the years. If the government would give us uniforms and gloves for our apprentices, maybe other youth would see that this work is real work, that good jobs lay at the end. According to a master tile maker, skilled masons could make far more money in a day of work during the high building season than accountants or nurses. However, as he explained, the work is very hard, very hard. They have to manage heavy bags of cement, flogging these blocks out of molds all under the hot sun because the cement needs it to dry. So many youth want the money, but they complain that the work is dirty, that it is not dignified. They would rather wear school uniforms and go hungry. In short, it was the difficulty of skilling in artisanal work and not its ease that often put off young people who might be interested in pursuing a craft. 
The prestige of schooling existed partially in its cleanliness, the orderliness of the experience, and as many youth who pursued schooling instead of trades told me, you don't have to sweat. Contrary to the myth of formal education being somehow superior because mastering it means achieving a higher level of cognitive difficulty, it was adjudged superior by so many young people because one could sit still rather than having to expend energy. The socially embedded embodied nature of skilling was judged to be far more difficult primarily because it was hard work. And in Sierra Leonean social discourse, being able to rest and have others do the hard work is an achievement usually reserved for the elderly after their own lifetime of toil. The life course of an artisan progressed in this way, with apprentices working the hardest for the lowest reward, journeymen being able to strike out on their own and achieve for themselves and their families, and masters achieving the role of teacher, one who can work but also rest and leave the sweating to the young apprentices. Formal education offered the promise of bypassing a young life of hard work, which marked it off as inherently superior. And here I tried to squeeze in um, a long section about formal schooling, but realizing that we're running out of time, I'll just get to the, my final section, which is called Internalizing Racism in the African Post-Colony. The current desultory state of education, the formal economy, and the future economic prospects in Sierra Leone would seem to point to the conclusion, as many children themselves conclude when they wander into workshops or pick up baskets to trade goods, that formal education is not, in fact, delivering on the rewards promised by the central government. Whether the goal is to not be backward or to become a nurse or member of parliament, there is essentially no evidence that just any child can do it, that anyone not already part of the small social, political, and economic elite possesses the money and blessings of a social network to achieve their dreams. That many children themselves do not see formal schooling as being in their own best interest would indicate that, in fact, Sierra Leone is not doomed by the unmitigated desire for formal education as the only way to achieve, quote, a better tomorrow that the shadow of hegemonic whiteness as an unspoken foundation for the development choices the government is making might not remain uninterrogated in the future. However, the power of hegemonic whiteness persists even in those very places where one would assume that the strongest opposition would exist within the minds of the master artisans themselves. Despite the fact that all of the craftsmen I interviewed were financially comfortable and had become patrons in their own right, that they regularly and forcefully extolled the virtue of their trades, looked for new apprentices among the youth and emphasized in conversation that unemployed people just needed a chance and someone to believe in them. Every single one of them were saving and sacrificing to keep all of their own children in formal school. One master tailor had all three of his children in secondary school, which had been very costly because two of them had had to retake their secondary school entrance exams multiple times before moving to the next level. He was hoping that they would all go to university, but as we were having this conversation, his mind drifted and I saw his eyes flick over the sewing stations in his workshop. He did the figures in his head and then concluded, to send the two oldest to university at the same time, I would need to expand, add at least four more stations and have all of them occupied full time. In essence, his children would be educated on the profits made by their father's apprentices and journeymen. I had not asked the furniture maker, the man who believed the government should be helping to fund his journeyman's workshops, what his children were doing, until I bumped into him at an open house from McKinney's most prestigious private school. He misinterpreted the surprise that I exhibited in, hearing, in seeing him there, preempting a comment from me with, yes, my shop does so well that I can afford to send my two oldest kids here. I'm here today looking to ensure that my little one gets a place next year. Like the master tailor, the profits from all of his apprentices were being funneled into a hope that his children could also join the educated elite. The mechanics, the tailors, the carpenters, none of them had children who were following in their footsteps. All of them took their apprentices from, as one artisan said, the boys who have nothing. 
Subconsciously, artisanal work was still somehow a choice of last resort. The allure of schooling is so powerful, its hegemonic hold on the mind so complete that even the most successful adults within the artisans cannot see past it, past its promise as the future for their own children. It does not matter how financially stable and socially secure they are, and how sure they are that the school that schooling does not guarantee success because it does not come with the skills that ensure employment. The hold of schooling on the imagination is unmatched and they are still seduced, believing without evidence, with their world telling them everything to the contrary, that formal education is somehow still superior to all other pursuits. Even as the Convention on the Rights of the Child articulates all forms of learning as equally valid in the language of rights, the racism internalized in the African post-colony produces the enactment of rights in bad faith with the select elevation of white forms of education. This is the true toll of hegemonic whiteness in the post-colony, that national development policy will pursue educational expansion uncritically, illustrating how our desire to move away from skilled occupations towards unskilled, unemployable education is a response to the racism of colonial education policy. However, it is one that unwittingly reproduces the perceived inferiority of so-called native non-school-bound pursuits. Thanks very much. Thank you, Kat. Uh, I was wondering to just start us off in our brief discussion before we uh, go to Sharsad, if you could um, say a little bit about the language the youth use to talk about or contest or take up these norms. Are they talking about education in terms of rights? Are they talking about their desires in terms of these um, uh, artisanal and and formal categories, or what is the way the sort of on the ground sense that the the youth talk about it? It's a really good question because a lot of the young people are essentially, you know, they they're not sure where to put all of their eggs, and so I, I published an article in twenty fifteen about um, reactions to uncertainty and how after several years of education, you know, young people are kind of brought into the fold of seeing that, you know, the, the graduates above them, if they don't have wealthy parents or sponsors, and if they're, you know, if their grades aren't perfect, they're not going to go to university. And so a lot of them end up um, kind of diversifying their pursuits. Um, they, one of them said, you know, when the teacher asked him in a classroom, like, what is a great scholar? And this was a classroom full of 12 year olds. One kid raised his hand and he said, a scholar is an overeducated person, meaning that, you know, what, what use is so much education? We can't see it around us, but it was also a reaction to the fact that their teachers were really poor. So even the educated class, they're not getting paid very much if they're getting paid at all. A lot of the money is skimmed off and, you know, by corrupt government officials. So the young people are seeing teachers in front of them who are very well educated, who make practically no money and can't really defend their choices. And so young people are kind of, some of them will trade after school, they'll kind of wander into workshops and they'll do these things, but they're still doing that as kind of a, a side hustle, hoping that education will pay off for them. Um, and it's, it, it's bizarre because in practice, there are young people who are kind of making these negotiations on the ground, but they all kind of consistently repeat these mantras about education, creating a better tomorrow and creating the leaders of tomorrow and that they want to be a part of that. And they can't kind of dissociate what the government is telling them their dreams should be from the realities that they, that they know very well on the ground every day. 
which is why I call this a kind of hegemonic hold on the imagination, even as they see in their everyday lives that education doesn't necessarily lead to any good conclusion, except it's a lot of time wasted before you end up unemployed at the end of the road, they still pursue it as though somehow things will be different. And there is a lot of internalized racism there, the desire to not be uh, physically dirty or physically moving or physically sweating um, because the colonial administrators didn't, right? They had the natives do all of their work for them. And so the goal was to be sitting in an office and have other people sweat on your behalf. And this has been passed down through the generations as a kind of really hegemonic internalization of racism of the colonial administration. I don't know if Sharzad or Rachel wants to uh, jump in. Well, I have a question, but I, I think I might actually save it uh, for the end because I I'm um, I think although our presentations are dissimilar or might seem dissimilar, there's a lot of interesting intersections. So I would I would love to get your take as an anthropologist on the more theoretical side of this, but but maybe maybe at the very end. Sure. Yeah, there's there's a lot of theory that it's hard to get to in 20 or 30 minutes, but um, yeah, we'd love to have that conversation. Okay, great. So before there is some uh, somebody commented and just noted uh, a life without education is not worth living. Uh, so, <laughs> and in the, where the chat is at, uh, remind everybody, feel free to keep posting your questions and, and comments as we go along. And uh, let's move to Sharzad now. Well, thank you, Ben, uh, for bringing us together and also to the uh, Center for Ethics for hosting and to Kat for that really interesting presentation and Rachel. Um, I'm looking forward to, to hearing from her soon too. I'm Sharzad Sabet. I'm a fellow at the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University and co-director of the Center on Modernity and Transition. Uh, by doctoral training, I'm actually a political economist but my PhD research on the identity-based sources of public attitudes toward economic globalization led me to become ultimately much more interested in uh, the more conceptual and philosophical questions around collective identity, and in particular, in the tension between the universal and the particular that characterizes our collective or social identities. So my current book project, uh, which I'll be speaking about, aims to advance a reconceptualized or reimagined universalism that resolves this stubborn tension between human oneness and human diversity in relation to identity. As you'll see in, in just a, a moment, it's primarily a theoretical project, um, but one that both draws upon and hopes to inform and include empirical studies. So I uh, very much appreciate the interdisciplinary nature of this panel today and, and the, uh, the presentation that Kat just made. Um, so before I dive in, let me just um, share with you my slides and make sure I share the right things with you so you're seeing the right thing. Uh, just give me a minute. Okay, so you should be seeing my slides and not any notes or anything. Is that correct? Okay, great. 
Um, so as, um, as I was just saying, um, just, sorry, let me just adjust this. Okay, sorry. So as I was just saying, um, this talk and this project more broadly begin from a set of conceptual, conceptual tensions, excuse me, that characterize uh, social or collective identity. There we go. Um, I think needless to say, questions of collective identity and belonging have surged to prominence in recent years. The salience of these questions uh, is not only vividly reflected in recent headlines, but also in the popular writing and public commentary of scholars and pundits from really across the political spectrum. The deeper conceptual tensions that underpin these recent questions and crises of identity, however, are longstanding ones. One conceptual tension in particular, I think, stands out as especially fundamental. As the philosopher Martha Nussbaum famously explains it, social identity is Janus-based. It proves a formula for both inclusion and exclusion. So on the one hand, uh, bounded social identities, that is identities that include some and exclude others, are deeply susceptible to instability, conflict, and destructiveness. On the other hand, collective identities are indispensable. The diversity they represent uh, delivers resilience to social systems, collective identities bind us together in moral and social enterprises, and of course, at a, at a micro level, our particular perspectives and attachments legitimately constitute an important part of our self-concept as modern human beings. They yearn for expression, they yearn for recognition. And as I discuss um, in the, the book manuscript, this duality maps onto a much broader social and philosophical tension between the universal and the particular. Now, recent attempts to resolve these tensions, whether by political theorists or others, have almost exclusively turned to some conception of liberal nationalism or liberal democracy. I think with, with uh, quite limited success. I turn instead to the cosmopolitan tradition in contemporary Western political theory and argue that cosmopolitanism has in fact sold itself short. Some of its most powerful potential contributions to this debate have largely gone under-recognized and underdeveloped. Specifically, I make the case that cosmopolitanism in general and a genuinely cosmopolitan or universal human identity in particular represents not just a linear expansion of scope from the national to the global as is widely conceived, but rather a qualitatively distinct shift that permeates identities and relationships at all levels of society, and that serves uh, to fundamentally protect and liberate our bounded attachments from their otherwise inherent instabilities and contradictions. In other words, I make the somewhat counterintuitive case that it is only by leaning into a genuine and thickly conceived universalism that the diversity of our particular identities can be fundamentally secured and promoted. Now, I should insert a, a brief footnote here on the key terms, the two key terms really of this presentation. Um, in terms of social or collective identity, I follow social psychologists here, and I define it simply as the part of an individual self-concept 
that is supplied by membership in a group or groups. Importantly, it's a self-categorization um, that also holds some degree of emotional significance or meaning. It entails, for instance, affective ties of empathy and belonging, and thus it represents something thicker than, say, uh, the formal or the rational recognition of equal moral worth, for example. In contemporary Western political thought, cosmopolitanism and cosmopolitan theories typically begin from the universalist premise that all persons have equal moral worth. And from there, they advance a variety of moral, political, and cultural visions for humanity that are universal in scope. Now, before I get uh, to the core of my argument, I want to start by briefly highlighting some of what's impeded the advancement of cosmopolitan thought in the direction that I would like to push here. Um, so I argue that a particular conceptual structure or a particular conceptual scaffolding has shaped contemporary Western cosmopolitanism in ways that obscure important expressions of its potential. Specifically, I wanna highlight two dimensions of this conceptual structure. The first and most notable dimension is spatial, and it reflects the common conceptualization of the cosmopolitan project as an expansion of spatial or territorial scope. So cosmopolitans uh, typically make the case for expanding the relevant scope of our concern beyond the national level, and then for extending or replicating at that expanded global level some typically Western thing that has already been established in the domestic sphere, whether uh, as a reality or as an aspiration. So to take one um, example of this, seminal theories of cosmopolitan global justice, such as those uh, of Charles Bites and Thomas Pogge, argue that what justifies Rawls's domestic principles of justice can be analogized and extended to the global plane, thereby expanding the spatial scope of justice. Theories of cosmopolitan democracy uh, follow a similar pattern and so on. A second related dimension of this conceptual structure is temporal or sequential, meaning that in much of this literature, the cosmopolitan or the universal follows sequentially from the domestic or the particular. So some phenomenon it is thought uh, first appears at the national level and then contributes to its own subsequent emergence in the global realm. We see this uh, temporal or sequential dimension, for instance, in Habermas's cosmopolitan treatment of global governments, global governance, excuse me. So this predominant uh, conceptual structure, I argue, has had at least three significant implications for how cosmopolitanism is conceptualized, both by political theorists and philosophers, but also more broadly. First, cosmopolitanism is thought to represent not a qualitative and thoroughgoing transformation, but rather one more step in an incremental, uh, unidirectional and linear project of scope expansion. In other words, the cosmopolitan step, so to speak, represents a difference of degree, not of kind. Second, cosmopolitan's domain of application is thought to be what lies beyond and across borders, not within them. And finally, uh, third and, and somewhat ironically, 
What emerges from this conceptual structure is a cosmopolitanism that grants conceptual priority to the particular over the universal in its theorizing. So in these theories, uh, the national or the particular is conceptually privileged, either by providing a model uh, to replicate at the global level, as we just saw, or by providing, as we'll see in a moment, the vehicle through which cosmopolitan ends are pursued and achieved. So this last point, um, this last implication is most strikingly revealed, I think, in the way that cosmopolitan theorists have uh, in recent years responded to their critics. Aside from the charge of idealism or utopianism, utopianism two overarching objections are typically leveled against cosmopolitanism. The first is that cosmopolitanism entails an overly rational commitment to a cold and distant abstraction. A cosmopolitan life, according to this critique, is empty and, and rootless. It's a life that's uh, deprived of all the tangible meaning and texture and color that our associations with particular places and identities provide. A second core critique claims that cosmopolitanism poses a serious threat to diversity. So for these critics, uh, the cosmopolitan ideal of human oneness carries an inherent risk of homogeneity, typically uh, Western or Eurocentric homogeneity and often propagated through direct and indirect forms of imperial or, or neo-imperial coercion. And of course, this uh, critique connects um, directly to, to the case that Kat just presented. So taken together, uh, the overwhelming objection of the critics is that cosmopolitanism's emphasis on our universal humanity comes at too great a cost to the particular. Now, cosmopolitan philosophers have responded to this objection by trying to reconcile the universalism of their theories with the particularism that's expressed in these critiques. And they've done it uh, by and large through the overarching idea of rooted cosmopolitanism, the notion that cosmopolitanism can not only be rooted in, but in fact promoted through the vehicle of our bounded particular affiliations. There are uh, many examples and expressions of this, of rooted cosmopolitanism. For instance, the idea that an enlightened nationalism can be leveraged to advance the cosmopolitan goal, say, of global justice. So again, uh, we find a cosmopolitanism that reinforces the conceptual priority of the particular, that doubles down, so to speak, on particularity in an attempt to resolve the tension between human oneness and diversity. Excuse me. So I argue, I'm going to argue that this widely held conceptualization of the cosmopolitan project in Western thought has limited our imagination of what cosmopolitanism in general and a universal human identity in particular can offer. I make the case that cosmopolitanism represents not just a linear and sequential expansion of scope, but rather a qualitatively distinct shift that fundamentally recasts all our identities and relationships. Excuse me. 
Specifically, I argue that a universal human identity is qualitatively different than every other social identity because of at least two distinguishing features that make it uniquely able to stabilize and empower our other banded affiliations. So the first of these features is rather obviously perhaps that it is non-exclusionary. Insofar as human beings and their communities are concerned, an identity rooted in our common humanity has no bounds of exclusion. It literally has no other. This stands in contrast to every other traditional social identity, which is by definition bounded and exclusionary. The second distinguishing feature of an identity based on our shared humanity is what I call its potential non-contingency. Again, consider that virtually all other uh, exclusionary gr group identities are inescapably socially constructed or contingent. Now, this is not to say, of course, um, that those identities are not real. It's to observe rather that the commonality in which they are grounded is contingent on a range of social constructs and impermanent uh, socio-historical phenomena. For example, uh, on our fluid beliefs about social and biological reality, on uh, the frequently contested details of history, um, and often tragically on shared experiences of oppression and injustice. I posit that unlike the socio-historically contingent basis of every other identity, the basis of a genuinely cosmopolitan identity uh, need not be socially contingent or constructed. So what does this mean? What do I mean by this? Um, specifically, I'm positing first that there is something distinctive and non-contingent that only and, all be, and only and all human beings have in common. Second, that the observable expressions of this human commonality, expressions in the form, uh, for example, of common yearnings, uh, vulnerabilities and experiences are such that human beings, whatever their particular context, can come to recognize that a distinctive and non-contingent human core or human commonality exists. And third, that human beings are able to readily recognize um, the humanness of another without a widely articulated consensus on the content of our humanity. In other words, there is or there can be a reasonably widespread intuitive consensus about who falls within the community of human beings. So I argue that these two distinguishing features of a cosmopolitan social identity that I've posited, that is, uh, the non-exclusionary and potentially non-contingent basis of a universal human identity carry um, pretty powerful implications. To bring these, or, or some of these implications into focus, I turn to the notion of security, which is uh, closely associated with the notion of identity in many disciplines. And in particular, I turn to the notion of felt security that we find in psychology. I make the case that only a universal human identity has the potential to deliver an overarching context of fundamental security to our other bounded identities. So this conclusion, I first of all claim, follows logically from the two distinctive features that I've posited. Consider first um, that these two features can yield parameters of inclusion that are immovably all-inclusive, parameters that are, in other words, 
thoroughly stable and safe. In contrast, bounded and contingently grounded identities have parameters of membership that are intrinsically susceptible to exclusion and othering. Now, this threat of exclusion, uh, of course, can come from without, that is from non-members, but significantly, it also comes from within. When parameters of inclusion are intrinsically bounded and socially constructed, the question of who belongs is never fully closed. I think um, the current discourse and political rhetoric around American national identity, for instance, illustrates this point as uh, the narrative of Americanness is recontested and retold, so too are its parameters of otherness redrawn. Those who look different, those who belong to the other party, uh, those who take a knee at a football game, and so on. So when parameters of inclusion are bounded and the basis of belonging contingent, the possibility of external threat is never fully eliminated. And one's claim to internal membership is never fully stable. Only a, a collective identity that is uh, both non-exclusionary and non-contingently grounded. In other words, an identity genuinely rooted in the recognition of our common humanity can deliver a context of fundamental security and belonging. In other words, one belongs because one is human, full stop. Now, I think it's, um, it's important to pause here and to recognize that there are very, very legitimate worries about casting our humanness in essentialist terms, as I seem to have done here with this premise of non-contingency. Needless to say, the concept of the human um, has been used to, to draw extremely destructive hier hierarchies. It has been used to establish and uphold uh, colonial and neo-colonial structures and practices what I'm proposing uh, without really having the time to fully discuss it here is that in fact, by explicitly positing that the content of a universal human identity must minimally include the recognition of its basis as non-exclusionary and non-contingent, we protect against false accounts of the human that violate these parameters that exclude or render the humanity of some contingent. So this particular formulation of a collective human identity I'm suggesting creates a safe, stable, a safe and stable set of parameters within which an open, inclusive, uh, capacious, diverse and dynamic inquiry into the content and expression of the human uh, can take place. So going back to my core claim, which I, I briefly drew logically, only a universal human identity, I'm claiming, has the potential to deliver a stable context of fundamental security to our other traditional identities. Empirical research in social psychology also substantiates these propositions in several ways. I'm going to uh, very briefly mention two threads of this evidence here. Research spanning uh, really a variety of methods indicates first that identifying with the humanity of others is associated with markedly higher levels of felt security. And second, that felt security relieves intergroup hostility and yields a posture of empathy, care, and openness to outgroups. This is um, in contrast to the feeling or the perception of threat which is widely shown to increase intergroup hostility. 
So again, um, this empirical research taken together begins to suggest that by resituating our particular identities within parameters of inclusion that are safe, immovable, and all-inclusive, a universal human identity can relieve the seemingly inherent instabilities of our particular attachments and deliver the context of genuine and enduring security that has long eluded our traditional bounded social identities. The implications of a universal collective identity, I suggest, however, go beyond just relieving particular identities of their destructive and destabilizing potential. What this context of deep, all-pervasive uh, security delivers, I argue, is not just a stable e uh, equilibrium of peaceful coexistence. What it delivers, in fact, I suggest, are optimal conditions for the vibrancy and flourishing of particular identities and of diversity more broadly. So the idea here might be um, very briefly put this way, when the cost and encumbrance of insecurity and its associated protective measures are removed on the one hand, and when an open and empathic posture toward difference becomes pervasive on the other, then uninhibited, constructive, and creative expressions of the particular from all sides become much more probable and robust. Defensive goals of survival and collective self-protection can give way to more generative and constructive goals. So through the felt security and certainty of belonging that a uh, genuine cosmopolitan identity provides, other identities find not only protection from their own instability and from the threat of other groups, but also uh, liberation or a release from the constraining weight that a context of latent threat has imposed on the expression of their potential. A reimagined universal identity, therefore, can furnish a powerful lubricant for the expression of diversity on newly constituted terms. Now, interestingly, the metaphor um, that captures this idea is the direct inverse of the metaphor of rooted cosmopolitanism that political theorists have developed to resolve this tension between the universal and the particular. I'm suggesting that it is not by rooting the universal in the particular, but rather by releasing or liberating the particular through the universal that a fundamental and enduring resolution emerges. What I'm arguing then, uh, somewhat counterintuitively, is that it is by elevating the conceptual priority of the universal over the particular, that is by leaning into a reimagined but thickly conceived universalism, that the particular thrives, flourishes, and is promoted. Finally, when cosmopolitanism is conceptualized in these terms, not in uh, spatial or sequential terms, but as a qualitative shift that permeates all spaces and levels of society, then the critique that cosmopolitanism entails a rootless, colorless existence loses its force. The domain of cosmopolitanism, as I've conceived it here, or the domain of the universal human, we might say, is not exclusively what lies beyond borders, nor is it uh, some distant and elusive abstraction. Its domain rather is everywhere. It includes 
all the textured neighborhoods and communities and countries and identities that each of us as human beings values and belongs to. So on this conception, the universal finds expression as much in the particular and as much within the boundaries of local and national communities as it does beyond them. Martha Nussbaum has famously claimed, as some of you uh, might know, that internalizing an identity rooted in our shared humanity effectively constitutes a kind of exile from the warmth and the color of the particular. I've tried to show that, in fact, a universal human identity holds powerful possibilities, including a concretely experienced, affectively rich, diversity promoting, and uniquely secure form of belonging. And I will uh, stop there. There we go. Nikki Sharzad, uh, I wanted to pose uh, a question coming from our chat that sure. is interesting. It says, uh, what does deviancy look like in terms of your cosmopolitanism? If membership is non-contingent, uh, then what about those who reject this form of cosmopolitanism? Uh, are they considered members not, nonetheless? Or uh, how do you think about their... I, I think the answer to that, <laughs> based on all the premises I've laid out, is yes. Um, you know, I think that the only thing that can preclude from, uh, uh, someone from, from membership in this identity is basically a rejection or a uh, denial of their humanity. So uh, certainly I don't think they... Um, the choice or to, to subscribe to this particular view of the human um, is what constitutes membership or not. Um, so no, <laughs> which is not to say that people, you know, do not have choices and autonomy in making those, those uh, kind of um, endorsing a view of the human in whatever way they, they would see fit. Um, but within the framework that I've laid out, those boundaries are, are very, very, very wide and inclusive. So precluding oneself from membership on the terms that I've laid out um, would be virtually impossible. Um, someone else is wondering if you could just briefly comment on uh, the relation of the non-human to your account? How is this cosmopolitanism? No, that's such a, that's such a great question. Um, and actually in an earlier formulation of this paper, um, I had actually, I had, I had characterized this identity um, not as non-exclusionary, but unbounded. Um, and that seemed to create, you know, some confusion along a, a variety of, of uh, dimensions. One was that, it, you know, it seems sort of amorphous and, you know, what about the boundary that many people hold between uh, humanness and the divine and so on. Um, but then there was also a question of, of our relationship with our natural environment and our, our um, ecological home. And so the, the, the thing that I really want to, I didn't, I should have probably mentioned it actually in my presentation, because I think it's really important. Um, what I'm proposing 
in no way precludes the possibility of an even um, an even more inclusive sort of conception of oneness in which we share some sort of oneness or certainly an interrelationship with our physical environment. So I don't um, I don't see this as at all as as a proposal that implies or could somehow lead to or should somehow lead to to any form of destructive anthropomorphism, for example. I think that it's um, it, it necessarily has to be uh, has to make room for an understanding of certain um, interrelationships and, and relationships of responsibility, I guess is how I would characterize it, with the natural world. Um, there was something else I wanted to say about that. And if I remember, uh, I'll bring it up. Oh, what I was gonna say was, I also think there's, there's some really interesting research that shows that in fact, um, the same predispositions and, and frameworks of thought that lead to environmental destruction, those are very correlated with um, the same predisp the predispositions that lead to the destruction of human life and the oppression of human life. So I think this, I, I completely appreciate the need to highlight and to emphasize that focusing on our humanity need not come at the expense of our physical environment. But I do think that this um, dichotomy is part of the, the kind of set of problematic assumptions that we bring to these questions. And that in practice, um, I think a genuinely uh, universal cosmopolitanism, as I've called it, would be conducive to care and responsibility and um, oneness with our ecological home rather than its opposite. Thank you. There, there are some other questions that are quite good also that I'm sure we'll get to in the communal Q&A to make sure we have time. I want to turn to Rachel's presentation. Yeah. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is really an honor to be included on this panel. Um, my name is Rachel Sicoria. I am a third year graduate student in philosophy at Texas A&M. Um, I work on decolonial feminism, disability studies, uh, hermeneutics, and phenomenology. Um, a, a quick note about the content of this piece, I will be talking about sexual violation from the perspective of people for whom their experiences of sexual violation are ambiguous and unclear. I focus on these experiences as they happen to people who are not socially valued and supported. I'm concerned about having a robust enough approach to sexual violation to account for their experiences and their resistance. I have in mind women of color, who are socially cast as both sexually passive and promiscuous, the disabled whose sexuality is normatively knotted with desire and disgust, and queer folk whose sexuality is characterized by sexual indeterminacy and ambiguity. I'm not trying to underplay the event of rape in the efforts to legally prosecute it. I am trying to recognize the many forms sexual violation can take and acknowledge their connection to other forms of violence, especially those rooted in colonialism. Like Linda Martin Alcoff, I am trying to talk about how one survives experiences of sexual violation. Unlike Alcoff, however, I am trying to think the resistant survival of sexual violation beyond the horizon of heterosexuality, beyond sexualities built on the assumption of the dimorphism of the sexual body as male and female, 
and the intersection of heterosexuality, racism, and ableism as modes of social oppression. My hope is that you can help me with this. Finally, please feel free to do whatever you need to take care of yourself as I read through the piece and as we move into the discussion afterward. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen now and I invite you all to read along with me, uh, hopefully so that I don't put anybody to sleep. Okay, can everyone see that? Great. Um, okay, so the meaning of the human is historically mutable, even as an ideal deployed by projects of liberation. In this paper, I offer a critique of a modern notion of the human defined by autonomy, rationality, decisiveness, and will as abilities of the modern subject, rather than as socially conditioned possibilities. I am concerned with how this notion of the human enables and reinforces the oppression of those who are effectively understood as non-human because they do not display these abilities. Against this, I stress that the perceived lack of humanity of the, the oppressed is the result of not being socially supported as modern subjects are. By the oppressed, I mean those deemed non-human situationally and with varying degrees of consistency within current and pervasive social formations rooted in colonialism. Here, I include colonized peoples, women of color, the queer and disabled, among others. In this respect, my project aims at disentangling a modern notion of the human from oppressed of socialities. Rather than finding ways to assure that the oppressed come to be socially supported as modern subjects, I explore the possibility of alternative socialities that do not enable this kind of subjectivity and the corresponding discernment of the human. I turn to non-modern socialities in which the oppressed participate beyond the human-non-human difference, even resistantly. In particular, I note that the modern notion of the human grounds resistance in the will of the modern subject a will to join resistant collectivities for the sake of an identity or a cause, for example. Related to this, I submit to critique liberatory projects that assume a modern humanity and thus deny their own social conditionings, concealing or pathologizing forms of resistance as these are lived by the oppressed. Thus, I find in the identification of resistance the possibility of enforcing oppression. This project is not against an appeal to humanism within liberatory projects, however. It warns against an uncritical assumption of the meaning of the human within such projects, which can turn them into mechanisms of oppression. It also reaches through this critique toward modes of resistance illegible from socialities aligned with modern subjectivity, where the subject antecedes social relations and wills them. Resistances that occur, rather, in the friction between modern socialities and non-modern ones, in which the oppressed participate beyond the social renderings of modern subjectivity. I rely on Maria Lugones, who shows that modern subjectivity, especially the self-certainty of an agential subject, is made possible by specific dominant social positionalities, rather than being a naturalized human condition. Following Lugones, I view modern subjectivity as a socially constructed and supported privilege of those who belong to the dominant order of social intelligibility. Instead of tethering resistance to the will of the modern subject, Lugones grounds resistance and agency in what she calls active subjectivity. This is the subjectivity of the oppressed, for whom there is no world laid out in advance, no articulate social horizons of belonging within which the activity of the will can meaningfully appear and in its appearance be recognized as efficacious. 
Active subjectivity is invisible from the perspective of modern subjectivity because it does not rely on the kinds of social supports that make visible the activities of agential modern subjects. This is not to say that for active subjectivity, there is no sense or sociality beyond dominant sociality. There is, and it draws from alternative non-dominant communities and processes of sense-making. Because these communities can be informed by non-modern social logics, their sense can be incommensurable with the sense formed within modern socialities. Thus, these domains of sense can appear nonsensical from the dominant perspective. Resistance for Lugones arises when multiply oppressive contexts, ambiguous and indeterminate social and historical environments in which possibilities of locating discrete events of oppression are foreclosed, are inhabited by active subjectivities in ways that cut against the grain of the same oppressive logics that produce the conditions in which they are embedded and in part informed by. This notion of resistance diverges from resistance anchored in the modern notion of human, such as Alcock's account of resistance to sexual violation, which I critique below. Unlike Alcock, resistance for Lugones does not naturalize or humanize a modern notion of subjectivity. It is not antagonistically opposed to a clearly identified harm and thus not aimed at social intelligibility, justice, or a restored sense of subjectivity. Based on this, I emphasize the need to identify a resistance that is not a matter of social reorganization or inclusion and recognition, a resistance that does not seek humanization. This entails conceiving of resistance as not solely oriented toward the liberatory goal of altering oppressive social contexts such that the agencies of oppressed subjects can receive uptake and their involvement's traction. Rather than framing liberation as a project of inclusion within humanity, I offer a parallel analysis that shows how those who do not count as human are already engaged in modes of resistance that do not rely on modern subjectivity and its implicit social support. Uh, part one, Alcock's analysis of sexual violation and sexual subjectivity. I approach the social framing of the victims of rape at the intersection of gender, sexuality, disability, and racial oppression in its decolonial articulation as the differentiation of the human from the non-human. I show the need to attend to this intersection through a critique of Alcock's account of resistance to sexual violation which she approaches in relation to sexual subjectivity as a mode of modern subjectivity. Drawing from Michel Foucault's Technologies of the Self, Alcoff describes sexual subjectivity as a mode of active agential subjectivity that entails an aware, critical, and willful inhabitation of one's constitutive contexts, such that, although never escaping relational co-constitutions and transformations, one becomes, so to speak, their own navigator. Sexual violation is thus problematized by Alcoff as debilitating sexual subjectivity insofar as it atrophies possibilities of will formation, self-making, and self-care, particularly in relation to sexuality. As harmful of the victim's self-relation, sexual violation is also seen by Alcoff as an impairment of one's relations with others and world, and hence a debilitation of ethical relationality more broadly. Alcoff therefore describes liberation from the epidemic of sexual violation as a restoration of victim sexual subjectivities. With this, she grounds resistance and ethical agency in the will of the modern subject. She also maintains that liberation requires securing intersubjective and social possibilities for victims. This entails for her a critical reevaluation of the norms of social and political participation such that victims, as modern subjects debilitated by the traumas of sexual violation, can be seen and heard by others. 
While Alcoff maintains hope for overcoming sexual violation and its related debilitations, she makes clear the stakes of her project. Quote, no matter when sexual violation happens in one's life, one's sexual life is forever changed. But if it happens when we are young or very young, the possibility of forming a participatory sexual subjectivity is seriously disabled. The problem here is not correctly understood as heteronomy or the fact that my relations with others have had transformative influence. Rather, the problem is a persistent pattern of relations with others that involves rape, sexual abuse, sexual coercion, structural manipulation, and violence, end quote. With seriously disabled, Alcoff suggests that the harms of sexual violation can be incurable. In such cases, sexual violation has irrevocably disabled the will and sexual subjectivity of the victim, transforming them into a pathologically habitual perpetrator and situating them in excess of a curative trajectory. I note that for Alcoff, an example of a sexually seriously disabled person is a cognitively disabled man, uh, a reference to disability that I will build on below. I also draw attention to the underlying ambiguous state of practical deliberation and will that characterizes Alcoff's serious disability, a state of perpetual confusion about what one does and does not want and about what others do and do not want. This means that sometimes it is even impossible for one to identify as either victim or violator. What does this mean for people engaging in, for example, queer sexualities? We may also be said to lack the ability of sexual subjectivity insofar as experiences of queer sexuality can be characterized by sexual indeterminacy and ambiguity. I point this out to challenge the assumption that ambiguous experiences of sexuality are inherently undesirable and dangerous. Queer sexualities, sometimes based on such ambiguous experiences, can be seen as positive, desirable, resistant, and necessary ways of living and relating, even if lacking in a socially supported sexual clarity and agency. With this, I note that Alcoff's account of serious disability conceals resistance as it is lived by, in this example, queer folk in and through sexual ambiguity without the intent to resolve this ambiguity. Part two, abjection and the racialized difference between the human and the non-human. Racial lines constitute differential constructions and distributions of disability. And building on my discussion so far, they also affect Alcoff's framing of sexual violation. According to Jasbir Puar, for white and privileged bodies in particular, disability is framed as a loss or an exception to the normal, healthy state of able-bodiedness and able-mindedness. For non-white bodies, however, disability is not seen as a loss, but as what is expected. And this disability is normalized as the everyday state of being. Poirot's concept of debility captures this within the context of neoliberalism, and I have discussed this phenomenon from a decolonial perspective as bestiality. In reference to queer, Latina, and Latino sexuality and sexual victimization, Juana Maria Rodriguez makes what I consider to be a parallel move to Poirot's. She posits the notion of ontological victim, arguing that, quote, for racialized women, victimization functions as an ontological condition, end quote. As the concept of debility suggests, ontological victimhood is not a state of fallenness from purity. It is not a loss, but an ambiguous, indeterminate state of tangled and shifting racialized constructions of sexuality that can be deployed as needed from the oppressive vantage point. Normalized as always already exceedingly passive and promiscuous, the Latina as ontological victim is akin to Alcoff's serious 
intellectually disabled, who, given the indeterminacy of a will incurably disabled through sexual violation, is both pathologically sexual victim and violator. To attend to the social framing of sexual violation and to locate alternative modes of resistance, I draw from Lugones' critical reading of Annabel Quijano and her delimitation of the racialized human-non-human difference as constitutive of the colonial modern system of power. Lugones sees this social difference articulating light and dark sides of colonial modern societies. Although fundamentally racial, Lugones shows that the human-non-human difference and its light and dark sides are also constituted by other social determinants, for example, gender, sexuality, and I would add ability. These differentiate humanity from animality based on the normative ideal of the white middle-class man. The light side includes hierarchical human positionalities of white men and women, and the dark side includes non-human positionalities of non-white males and females and animals. I locate Rodriguez's ontological victim and Alcoff's seriously disabled in the dark side. Recognizing the denial of humanization for the colonized orients Lugones's analyses of colonial and post-colonial societies. She's attentive to those on the dark side, those deemed non-human as not having the option to transition to the light side and be humanized. She points out how from the dominant perspective of the light side, the subordination and devaluation of the dark side serves to justify both inhumane and civilizing treatments of the colonized. Yet civilizing the colonized is never the intent of the colonizer. Rather for the light side, the dark side acts as the negative through which the light side sees itself and as a site of labor exploitation. To emphasize the implications of Lugones's socialized, racialized, human non-human difference for sexual violation, I turn to Rodriguez's discussion of Derek Scott's notion of racialization through abjection. This concept reveals abjection, the destabilization of ego boundaries and the ego's response to this threat as a socially mediated process. Central to racialization through objection is, in my view, and echoing Lugones, the situation of the white human as the always already subject or the never fully abject, and the non-white non-human as the always already abject or never subject. In response to existential threats, white human subjectivities can sustain themselves when, through processes of racialization, they jettison their refuse as and onto non-human others. In this, threats to white humanity are projectively displaced onto non-human, non-white bodies and then responded to as if they properly belonged there. Those racialized as non-human, however, are socially denied the possibility of protective projection insofar as this is a response enabled by socialities that correspond to the human. In this, the oppressed are socially denied the possibility of a resistant, subjectifying, and humanizing response to their own abjection. Part three, Alcoff's account of resistance. Racialization through abjection helps me draw out the social mediation of Alcoff's account of sexual violation as an intersubjective experience of abjection, as well as her account of resistance to sexual violation. Alcoff turns to touch to locate both violation and resistance. For her, pushing back against the willing, desirous touch of the violator is the disgusted, unwilling touch of the victim. She views the victim's felt unwillingness as a resistant assertion of their first person subjectivity. Quote, I am that which does not want that. I am that person who resists, who is repulsed by the touch, end quote. Alcoff thus grounds resistance to sexual violation in the subject who, through disgust as felt undesire, exceeds the violator's abjecting reduction to objecthood. 
In my view, the victim's resistant revulsion not only reconstitutes them as a human subject, it also secures the distinction between victim and violator by situating the violator and their desirous intent as abject other. Disgust is therefore presented by Alcop as both the embodied affective manifestation of the victim's resistance to their sexual violation and what secures the grounds of liberation by stabilizing a subject that can be oriented by felt unwillingness during its recovery of sexual subjectivity. However, since social determinants of gender, race, sexuality, and ability are at play in abjection, those expelled from the light side in the first place as non-human abject lack the socially sustained sexual clarity of will that Alcoff's account of resistance assumes. Moreover, the separation of victim from violator that sustains the resistant subjective affirmation of the victim and their possibility of restoring sexual subjectivity depends on a prior articulation of a sociality where the disgust of the victim and the desire of the perpetrator can be rendered intelligible in their difference and value. This lack of social backing for the non-human becomes apparent in Alcoff's discussion of pleasure in the experience of sexual violation. In seeking to maintain the integrity of the victim as unwilling subject, Alcoff must excise both pleasure and ambiguity from the victim's lived experience of violation. She thus excludes the possibility that the felt pleasure on the part of the victim can be constitutive of a sexual subjectivity in the way that disgust is. She describes the victim's pleasure as only a product of coercive manipulation and frames it as an embodied betrayal of the victim's will. By characterizing the resistant victim as wholly unwilling and disgusted, a clarity that would be betrayed by any experience of pleasure or desire on the part of the victim, Alcoff's account of resistance depends on the resolution of ambiguity from the victim's lived experience of violation. Alcoff's reduction of pleasure to betrayal also suggests that she strongly and narrowly ties the victim's pleasure to the abjecting event of sexual violation. That is, for her, the pleasure is felt, the pleasure felt is only understood as being toward the violation. The resistant distinction between desire and disgust, pleasure and revulsion, rests for Alcoff on the difference between willingness and unwillingness. This assumes the possibility of locating a discrete event of oppression toward which one can be unambiguously unwilling. It also assumes that the power to delineate between what one does and does not want sexually is primarily located in the subject as a result of their practical reflection, rather than in social processes of disambiguation that inform and are informed by normative social contexts. Such contexts, like heterosexuality, are horizons of intelligibility within which subjects are embedded, in my view, and going beyond Alcoff, where there is no socially normative sexuality available. The localization of harm and the self-certainty to identify a pure disgust or to see pleasure as a betrayal of the integrity of victimhood do not have social backing. This is not to say that for those without social backing, there is no rape. I bring up the cases of victims that are women of color, disabled and queer, victims for whom their sexuality is already socially ontologized as ambiguously passive and perverse, for whom gender is denied as socially intelligible, for whom there is no available social redemption nor recognizable resistant response to abjection. These, I suggest, are all coughs seriously disabled. In their cases, an ambiguity of pleasure and revulsion remains not, as Alcoff suggests, because their subjectivities and wills are incurably disabled. Rather, they remain phenomenally in a state of ambiguity because there is no social backing to sustain for them a sense of sexual clarity 
or to validate assertions of themselves as modern human subjects. Drawing from my discussion above, I suggest that the unambiguous victim, the one who can identify their oppression, recognize disgust as a true response to violation, and see pleasure as a betrayal of the body, is a construct projected from a socially normalized, healthy sexual subject, the white, able-bodied and minded, heteronormative modern subject whose sexual clarity and resistant willful subjectivity are already socially supported. Recalling Lugones, I maintain that the support is one accessible to those who occupy light, socially intelligible or human positionalities. Part four, resistant pleasures. Rather than seek their social humanization and recognition, I propose to engage the pleasure of the victim differently beyond the parameters of Alcoff's articulation of sexual subjectivity and resistance. As Rodriguez suggests, this is to seek pleasure in the abjection of the ontological victim, in the, in the impossibility of their resistantly responding to abjection by distinguishing themselves as violated subject from abject violating other. From this perspective, Alcoff's exclusion of ambiguity and pleasure can be seen as a concealment of modes of resistance that arise from the non-modern active subjectivities of the oppressed. I emphasize that with this, I'm not saying that Alcoff is irrelevant. Rather, I argue that she addresses a very specific kind of, non, of modern dehumanization, and her account is conducive to certain forms of resistance. I draw again on racialization through objection, now as it affords an opening to an alternative sense of power and resistance. Quote, this power, which is also a way of speaking of freedom, is found at the point of the apparent erasure of ego protections, at the point at which the constellation of tropes that we call identity, body, race, nation, seem to reveal themselves as utterly penetrated and compromised without defensible boundary, end quote. In the abjection of the oppressed, power and freedom thus emerge in the preclusion of a resistant response to an abjection, rather than depending on identification with socially intelligible tropes such as victim. For Rodriguez, this opens to new ways of understanding resistance and sexuality, particularly in relation to bodies racialized as ontological victims. In my view, Lugones also recognizes such a possibility. I see this in her discussion of the rape of colonized female bodies. She describes the racialized construction of the female body as all sex and labor, as a violent reduction of the body to penetrable open holes for the sake of male pleasure. This supports the invisibility of the sexual violation of the colonized as a non-human body that, like Rodriguez's ontological victim, is in excess of the social intelligibility of violation and victimization. Lugones writes, this body is penetrable but impermeable. It is an animal's body that can be raped without being raped because it is not rapeable a body that senses the rapist pleasuring himself in grunts, thrusts, and brutal movements on her flesh without her sensual collaboration. It is a body penetrated, assaulted, reduced, made to bleed and scream, not aroused, not giving, screaming rather than issuing sounds of pleasure, a property thing forced to move in every form of pain, soul pain, body thing, impermeable turn tool, weaving wool, washing the clothes of power, breaking fruit from plant without connection, working before dawn till dusk, unceasingly accumulating value for those who make a being without connection. I point out that although Lugones begins here with the rape of the colonized female body, what she describes is not a singular event of rape. 
This is not to say that there is no rape occurring here. Lugones instead traces the ways in which the penetration of the colonized female body extends also to her weaving wool, washing clothes, and picking fruit. Lugones thus moves away from fetishizing the event of rape in order to account for the ways that the experience of the colonized is laced with forms of violence that aim to destroy non-modern relationalities and sexualities. Despite the diffusiveness of the colonized female's violation, Lugones does not give up her resistance. Quote, she senses, touches, feels, recognizes her slow disintegration as she pushes against the white man's bestiality and insatiable greed, end quote. Unlike Althoff, Lugones does not, and indeed cannot, respond to this abjection by only interpreting the excess of the colonized female as a subjective exceeding of a localizable penetrating reduction to objecthood. In the, touch, in the touching back of the colonized female body, Lugones not only sees the self-assertion of a disgusted, unwilling modern subject, but also the surging of an active subjectivity embedded in a relationality that is, quote, tender, permeable, responsive moving with water, earth, mycelia, trees, seeds, embodied selves, people, end quote. In this, Lugones understands the resistant excess of the colonized female body that arises in her utter penetration and irrecuperable erasure as an opening to other possibilities of community. Moreover, Lugones affirms that this resistant surge of belongingness is felt not as disgust, but in modes of desire and pleasure. Lugones recognizes the resistant potential of desire and pleasure in that as ecstatic, they can operate without depending upon or drawing us into a horizon of meaning or an encasement in modern subjectivity. She approaches modalities of desire and pleasure as possibilities for active subjectivities to resistantly co-inhabit dominant human socialities without finding in them a gentle support or recognition, while also establishing sustainable forms of community and sense-making. Part five, reciprocity, permeability in the body. Lugones focuses on one form of community open through resistant pleasure in her discussion of non-modern reciprocity. I understand her account of reciprocity as articulating what Arturo Escobar describes as strong relationality or quote, the viewpoint of an epistemology and an ontology without subjects, objects, and acts conceived as self-sufficient and intrinsically independent, end quote. In contrast to modern forms of community that revolve around modern subjectivity and dichotomous social identities, strong relationality does not articulate relations that are enacted between prior existing and commensurable modern human subjects. Lugones' sense of reciprocity emphasizes permeability or dynamic interwovenness and porosity, emptiness. Porosity makes permeability possible in that it sustains radical transformations and relational reconstitutions. In this sense, porosity is emptiness, is not nothingness, but rather a tense, affective stillness charged with rhythms of indeterminacy. For Lugones, permeability and porosity and the ambiguity and indeterminacy that they generate characterize all things, things being better described within this relational context as interbeings. This includes habitats or relational contexts in which interbeings are embedded and co-constituted prior to their individuation. Marisol de la Cadena explains this immersion as interaction. She writes, as interaction, reciprocity is not a relationship between entities. It is a relationship from which entities emerge. It makes them, they grow from it, end quote. Interaction is experienced in, with, through habitats of permeability and porosity at the level of the permeable body, 
in affects, physicalities, and sensibilities that exceed and destabilize dominant social orders of human intelligibility and configurations of human subjectivity. Most relevant to my discussion, the permeable body is, for Lugones, the expansive body whose sexuality is not understood in reference to predetermined sexual sites, uh, for example, reproductive organs or holes for penetration, and whose pleasures cannot be understood as tied to clearly demarcated events, uh, or in other words, productive exchanges between modern subjects, including oppressive ones. I note that by remaining with the sexual body in all of its ambiguity and indeterminacy, Lugones' account of the sexual body helps us approach not only resistance, but also violence in a much more expansive way, particularly as it relates to the oppressed. Lugones' sexual body can be clarified in contrast to Alcoff's sexual body, which is reduced from the outset of her project. Although for Alcoff, sexual violation reverberates through the whole human being, she argues that the initial trauma can be located in reference to specific parts of the body. These are, for her, sexual organs as uniquely sensitive and important body parts that, quote, have a meaningful content that cannot be manipulated at will, end quote. With this framing, Alcoff reduces the body to holes for sexual reproduction and in this naturalizes heterosexuality in the body. Moreover, by presupposing the unique meaningfulness of sexual organs, Alcoff puts on display the disambiguating power of heterosexuality as a prior social articulation of intelligibility that sustains the sexual clarity and will of healthy, modern sexual subjectivities. This erases the space of embodied ambiguity and excess of importance to Lugones. Grounded in Lugones' expansive sense of the sexual body, a body not backed by heterosexuality or other socially normalized sexualities, are modes of resistant pleasure and desire. These are ways of experiencing reciprocity, not as it arises between and constitutes subjects inhabiting worlds of meaning, but in the sense of strong relationality as permeable interconnection that churns with relation, separation, and metamorphosis. To experience such pleasure is to feel a belongingness that centers not on human intelligibility, subjectivity, agency, or world, but on porous participation in transhuman habitats of permeability and in the dynamism of cosmic becoming. It is in this sense that for Lugones, pleasure and desire can be resistant. In their resistant modes, pleasure and desire can support our exceeding of oppressive reductions as porous and permeable active subjectivities rather than only as modern subjectivities. In this way, they support survival in the midst of violence. They make possible living in ambiguous and indeterminate social contexts laced with diffusive and interwoven objections by participating in permeability and other communities of sense rather than only in dominant socialities. Resistant pleasures are thus not tethered to specific forms or events of oppression, even though they arise in multiply oppressive social spaces and in this sense are constituted by them. In excess of dominant modern social logics, pleasure and desire can undo their and our belongingness to oppression by effectively drawing us toward a relational mode of interbeing that is not organized by social logics of identity, which would determine victims on the basis of identifiable events of sexual violation and situate their possibilities of resistance on normative curative trajectories that aspire to be human, for example. Lugones' account of pleasure therefore allows for seeing the pleasures felt by victims of sexual violation as resistant and as not being toward the violation. To this end, Lugones calls on us to witness the pleasures of the penetrated colonized female body, not in order to diagnose her as seriously disabled, but in order to remain faithful to permeability as that which sustains her resistant active subjectivity. 
as that which she requires in order to live. Quote, imagine her, sense her, feel her from the inside, inhabit her in her habitat, be in her connection, sense her as porous, permeable, deeply inside the world connection. No thing, no object here. Every estasis is from within a permeable connection. How can she, he live? How can she, he, everything live in the midst of violence? She awakens in her embodied self, a double feeling consciousness of the permeable body. And then to discover, explore, appreciate, engage her permeable body in reciprocity in an unstable dynamic balancing. I would like to conclude by noting that Alcoff's account of rape and resistance was very helpful for me. It allowed me to understand an ambiguous sexual experience of mine along the lines of sexual violation, specifically by giving me the tools to affirm feelings of revulsion and disgust that arose for me during this encounter. But Alcoff could not help me affirm the pleasure and desire that I also felt during this experience as more than a betrayal. I needed theorists like Lugones and Rodriguez in order to think about how my pleasure, even in the midst of violation, was linked to something other than the violation itself, how my desire was a willingness toward other possibilities of community, in my case, queerness. Alcoff also could not help me understand how the possibility of positively affirming my disgust in the context of sexual violation was not an ability of mine, but rather more fundamentally a consequence of my social positionality in, as Lugones would put it, the light side. In wanting to hold on to both my disgust and my desire in their entanglement and without emphasizing one over the other, which meant foreclosing the ideals of clarity and healthy human sexuality that orient Alcoff's account, I needed thinkers who could help me see myself as more than seriously disabled and beyond resistance. This required moving beyond the human non-human difference. Lugones in particular helped me to do this and to see that my resistant trajectory was not about separating pleasure from disgust in order to make sense of a violation and of myself as a victim. Instead, it was about keeping them together in their lived entanglement in order to move away from socially dominant values and toward queerness. This was also a move toward an alternative queer sense of sexual active subjectivity grounded not in the will, but in pleasure and desire. I found this alternative queer sexuality through Lugones' attentiveness to the social force of the distinction between the human and the non-human, which allowed me to let go of attachments to socialities and ideals of subjectivity that dehumanize me. Although my experience of queer sexuality began with an experience of sexual violation, not characterized by clarity and decisiveness, but by ambiguity and indeterminacy, Lugones has helped me understand it as more than pathological, more than unethical, and more than unresistant. Thank you. Thank you for that, Rachel. Uh, one of the things I was thinking about during your presentation is uh, something of this dialogue you're kind of staging between uh, Puar and Lugones or some of these sources you're bringing up. And I wondered if you could talk more about um, these theoretical resources together. I, you didn't, I know you didn't spend too much talking about um, what uh, Puar is giving your, your account here, um, but I'm kind of thinking about this because I know the, uh, some of your other research that brings it into mind Latin, Latin American decolonial concerns. And I'm thinking of the way some of Puar is drawing on similar geopolitical concerns, but from a different kind of continental archive, which I know is also some of your interests. So I'm wondering if you could say more about this, some of this 
discussion between Puar and, and Lugones that you're bringing up here? Yeah, so I, um, I bring in Puar um, in terms of, uh, in relation to disability, the way that um, disability is both constructed differently and then distributed differently across socialities. For her, in terms of neoliberalism, um, between the kind of dominant uh, economic, um, like participating in the dominant economic social sphere, um, and then being on the outside of that. Um, and, and although she's not, her analysis isn't embedded in the decolonial framework, I, I found, um, I actually found her work after I had started to do work thinking about disability within the context of um, decolonial theory. And I think that Puar's account of debility um, as the way that disability is normalized as an everyday state of being for those um, on the outside of the dominant economic sphere, that she does a really, really nice job with this. And then she also is interested too in the way that um, the control over affect plays a really central part in keeping um, the system in place. So I, I like, I, I kind of brought her in because I'm just beginning to work with her and I, and I really like how she talks about this, even though um, like, yeah, she's not doing it in the context of the, the decolonial theory, but I'm, I'm definitely interested in bringing her together more because I think that she is very helpful for, for drawing out the way that disability um, is, as a very central part of the way that the human and the non-human difference gets um, articulated and, and imposed. Right. I wonder if Kat or Sharzad have uh, any questions before we uh, shift our conversation. A comment more than a question. I, I think the the papers hold together really well in terms of this idea of, you know, sort of recognition of the inversion and refusal of colonial norms is kind of fundamental to thinking about humanism. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking uh, along those lines as well with some of what you brought up with respect to education, cat, and then some of what Rachel's talking about in terms of. Uh, sexuality. Even from your kind of epigraph, Kat, on this question of models, uh, you know, forward, this might be a good time to shift into kind of a general discussion, bringing the, the papers together. So I want to open up to the panelists first before we um, jump to the audience to see if uh, uh, y'all have to say now that we've heard everybody's papers. Well, originally I had a I had a question for Kat, but I think it could really go to everyone on the panel, and that was um, just a, a more broad, a, a more general question, sort of stepping back from the themes we've been discussing about um, how do you see the role or the relationship of um, empirical inquiry and um, the the lives and lived experiences of real people, people across a diversity of contexts, how that relates to more philosophical and normative inquiry. Um, I guess I'm coming from a, a bit of a frustration with 
some of the literatures that I engage, which I feel often, certainly not always, but are often insufficiently attentive mm -hmm. um, to the empirical and lived side of the, the themes and the questions that they engage. So yeah, I, I'm curious how you see that. And it seems to me, you know, that, that in your case too, Rachel, there's a, there's a, um, there's a relationship there that you would endorse. So I'm wondering what, how both of you might think about that. When I first got into anthropology, it was described to me as applied philosophy and that, you know, it philosophy, philosophy has a relationship with the real, but it, it with the empirical, but it did not, denies it a lot of the time. And there's, and I, you know, I, that's not meant in a sort of um, derogatory yeah. way, but that, you know, why let um, the complexity and the messiness of real life get in the way of a really clear theoretical orientation. But I think the two can exist in perfect harmony because the, the way I treat theory is essentially, you know, the world is messy, data is messy, human lived experience is full of cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. And really the only way to kind of bring all of those threads together is with a very powerful tool that can help you kind of explain that. And so in, in the book that I published a couple of years ago on the experiences of youth and the struggles of youth in post-war Sierra Leone, I used Karen Barad, I used a gentle realism and interaction. And, you know, so this sort of the quantum theory of going of digging down into the real nitty gritty of what um, encounters look like was fundamental to the way that I conceived of who youth are um, in this landscape. And so I think they need to have a relationship with each other. I want to see them have a better relationship with each other. Um, because I think that, you know, we can't have abstraction without empiricism, but we can't have, you know, we can't make sense of empiricism without philosophical abstraction as well. I would, um, to, to build on this, well, one, I would note that I have begun actually engaging more and more anthropology, um, as well as, you know, empirical sources. Um, and as I, I think is obvious for my talk, my own kind of uh, lived experiences too. So I very much agree with what's been said. Um, and I think Lagones is also helpful here too, in that when she's thinking about the relationship between theory and in praxis, um, uh, she begins talking about the streetwalker and the disconnect between theory and the live realities uh, in, in particular for her the, of the oppressed. And so the need to kind of, um, on the one hand, be in the street and be thinking from the street and also attentive to the ways that the theories that we bring with us might be doing a lot of work to get in the way of our uh, ability to even engage and see what's in front of us um, when we are at that level. So I think she, for me, has been very helpful in trying to more and more uh, ground myself in lived reality. Something else that comes to mind and this question for me also that we've seen manifested differently here today is about voice as well. I mean, what are, you know, if the methods are, are different in philosophy, I mean, I'm trained in philosophy and, and there is often the kind of uh, masterful, logical voice. So it, so I'm also left kind of thinking with this question of to the extent that our methods shift or if we are willing 
to address what you named as a frustration, Charizard, around philosophy's rejection of uh, uh, what is real so often, then, then perhaps we also have to think about how the voice uh, shifts, which Rachel's paper did an interesting job of bringing up at the end also. Yeah, no, that's a great point. That's a, that's a really good observation. And I think there's also, um, there are a lot of normative possibilities that are too readily dismissed by philosophical inquiry that um, would be seen as more plausible and compelling if, if we were more attentive to um, the lives and experiences of real communities. So yeah, I, I agree with everything that, that has been said. We have some lingering chat questions that I'll just sort of post to the group. They came most directly from uh, Sharsa's discussion, but it, but I'm sure everybody has kind of comments on this because I mean, just from reading your work, I'm thinking, for instance, Kat, about things we've talked about about your discussion of the vernacular uh, with respect to rights discourse and how the idea of vernacularization uh, misses some of what's going on on the ground. So, in any case, the question is is um, about preserving the particular in in moving to a universal or I mean to put this you know more concretely the question of diversity with respect to holding on to a humanism uh, I wonder if uh, or or I mean I realize Charizard your your categories or the way you laid out your talk kind of the qualitative difference maybe challenges some of that the way I'm posing the question but I'm trying to both summarize uh uh, the chat discussion and be faithful to to these questions. Sorry, what's the what's the question? Well, the question is about uh, how the individual, how the subject, how the particular stays alive, is vibrant, mm -hmm. remains in any kind of abstraction toward cosmopolitanism, humanism, whatever it is. Well, I I actually think, um, given the discussion we just had. <laughs> um, the, the first thing I would say actually is that we should observe that um, the only people or the only um, subset of people who are able to uh, give expression to some form of cosmopolitanism and recognition of, of human oneness are not, as we're often led to believe, it's not just, you know, a hyper- uh, mobile, frequent flying, typically smug set of people sitting in an airport lounge on their way to Davos. I think this, this reconciliation of diversity with universalism actually um, takes place in a lot of communities and a lot of diverse communities. I think it, it's um, observable in the lived experience of maybe the vast majority of, of human beings on earth. Now to different extents, um, obviously, there are a lot of examples that contradict this, um, but I personally know and I'm part of communities in which this reconciliation of our oneness with our diversity are, are um, quite consciously pursued and quite effectively expressed. And so one of one of the ways I mean, I think, you know, I can make a case for this um, analytically and, and try to persuade people. And I, I hope that at the very least, what, what an argument like mine does is open up the possibility in people's minds that this is um, a potentially fruitful um, way of thinking. 
But I think ultimately it, it will be important to bring empirical inquiry into this and to begin to understand and unpack better how it is that real people and real communities reconcile these two seemingly um, uh, contradictory expressions of, of human life. Um, so I guess that's not a very satisfying you know, answer. Um, but I do think that we are fed a lot of things, whether it's in, in uh, certain strands of philosophy or in the media in the last few years, which really dichotomize for us to an extent that kind of becomes unrepresentative of the human experience and of the possibilities of human experience. And I'm thinking, you know, there's all the literature that I engage, which sort of does this, but all the, the sort of populist rhetoric around cosmopolitanism as being sort of elite domain and um, all of the, the rhetoric around things like Brexit and building a wall and the way that that sort of um, appeals to our identities in a way that that's um, deeply dichotomizing, I think, of, of these aspects of human reality that most people don't have such a fundamental problem with. Um, so yeah, I, I, think, I think we need to sort of strip away some of these assumptions that we have, become very conscious of them, and then look with fresh eyes at the way that people actually um, express this so-called contradiction. I'm not saying that it's been resolved in the world, far, far, far from it, but I think we have a lot to learn by um, looking for cases and examples that actually succeed in recognizing our unity with our diversity. And then um, engage in this more dynamic form of inquiry between, you know, as, as uh, Kat was describing, between conceptual philosophical um, reasoning and more empirical and grassroots um, uh, inquiry. I'm curious if others have any thoughts on that, though, or, or Ben, you can you can put. I have some, but I want to see if Kat or Rachel has something. I yeah, I mean, I I think my um, I'm kind of stuck in the fact that I you know I I teach ethnographic methods every year, and you know my my goal for the students is they always start from the data, ground in the data, and go from there, um, and that you know, it's, it's your theory that you need to test against the data and not the other way around. Um, and, you know, this, it, I think it, it forces us to produce better theory um, because the world does not create the kind of clarity that we would often look for intellectually. And so how do we, how do we find it? You know, how do we ground what we're doing, I mean, grounded theory is, is a concept in anthropology where the theory emerges out of the data that you found. And, you know, and, and it can go somewhere from there, but we need to kind of figure out what the origins of theories are um, and how it is that they kind of took on the social and intellectual life that they do. And thus where it's kind of safe to take them and where you're moving kind of too far away from the reality that they're, that they're trying to suggest. And so, you know, I, I always like to go back to Hannah Arendt, who said, there's no better way to test your theory than, you know, to see if it holds up against a really good example. 
and that she was pretty much the consummate storyteller and always kind of, you know, all of her work emerged from very particular empirical examples that she would spend a long time interrogating. And I think it's a very successful way to merge the two. Rachel? I, I'm not sure if this solves the problem of the particular and the universal, but I was thinking um, as you were talking, Sharazad, about affect and the, and you had mentioned earlier, even the, your openness to a more expansive sense of, of oneness that could in, involve the environment as well. Um, so I wonder, you know, what role affect um, might play in in what you're thinking about um, and the, the senses of community or belonging that that could be there and be felt um, maybe in the midst of all of these differences and also, you know, different configurations of, of power as well. Uh, affect is interesting. I mean, I, I don't know specifically what you have in mind when you say that, but I think um, one thing that is worth noting, I didn't really get to it in my presentation, is that um, one of the, the critiques against, against cosmopolitanism expressed in identity is that the more we kind of elaborate and fill out the content of our humanity, which we would need to do with an identity. You know, identity entails affect, it entails a conception, you know, it entails an idea of what we share in common with each other in a more thickly conceived way. And so the idea is the more we do that, the more we're likely, the more we run the risk of, of coming up with something that's exclusionary and oppressive and biased. Um, but I think as a, as a, as an antidote to that way of thinking, I think we also need to recognize that um, the recognition of difference and distinction is also much more likely within the context of an affectively rich relationship. So, um, you know, the, the the argument that I that I was just making, the critique that I was just rearticulating, um, tends to to endorse a much thinner conception of our humanity derived, you know, that, that sort of is rationally derived, some sort of thin idea of the basic uh, equality of human beings. They're sort of thin, uh, some thin conception of their dignity, nothing too elaborate or thickly conceived or, or inter deeply internalized and felt. Um, but that's not, those sorts of thin bonds are not the most conducive to really, um, to the to the sense of really wanting to know the particular burdens of the other, of really wanting to understand and articulate their distinctiveness. And I think we we can appreciate this point just thinking about the people we love. You know, when you love someone, you want to know who they really are. Um, so I do think that affect plays a, a, a really important role in universalism that is um, often marginalized because of the assumptions uh, we bring to it. And then also I just maybe would add to the, the original question that Ben posed from the chat. I certainly don't want to suggest though that every aspect of every culture, every expression of diversity should be preserved and would be preserved. You know, I, I laid out a certain conception, minimal conception of what I think 
a human identity might entail. And those parameters preclude and eliminate certain cultural commitments that would contradict or undermine the universal humanity of, of you know, every single human being. So it, my, my case is certainly not that um, we can preserve diversity as it is perfectly. I don't think we should aspire to do that. Um, it's more a general case about a context in which diversity uh, thrives even as it evolves. At the same time, empiricists would tell you that, you know, we can't really know what the real human is because people themselves don't necessarily know, or if you love someone, you want to know who that real person is. But is that a fair thing to ask of them? I mean, most people don't have some, you know, some core sense of self that is unmoving that they can articulate. And this is why so many people are in therapy. You know, we're, we, we don't necessarily have an existence that exists outside of our culture enculturation, our social worlds and our interactions with others, which was actually fundamentally Karen Barad's point in that we, can, we can't necessarily think that we can dig successfully into people's minds and find a real there, you know, that we have to kind of approach the world from, from other directions to figure out how it kind of continually unfolds. Um, you know, in the social, uh, and that's kind of where we have to base our analysis. It's it's like people looking for the smoking gun in an epidemic, which is also something that I work on. Like, what does it matter how patient zero got sick um, if you know five million people are infected? You know, what is what is the question that you're really trying to answer, or what good will it do to answer that question? Was an even better question. I actually have to go. I've got. Yeah, I was going to say it's my yeah, couple of other commitments. So to uh, to sum things up for us. So thank you. I just want to say, bringing some of this together, you know, we're left with these questions. And Kat, if you really have to go, feel free to just. Zoom I got two minutes dis- before I got to. Yeah. Okay. Clear, so, yeah. I mean, we are left with some of these questions. You know, you brought up Hannah Arendt, who said famously in Origins of Totalitarianism that the world found nothing sacred in the abstract nakedness of being human. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, you know, we have to then think kind of the limits maybe of this category and what it does in addition to, to maybe what it could do. And then we, you know, I was at this presentation the other day on uh, the role of women in Rastafari religion and the presenter said something very interesting. He said he tested, I'm thinking of your point, Kat, about data and theory. He said he tested, uh, he was suspicious of the colonial archives he was working with in the Caribbean and Jamaica. And so he tested the archives against the oral histories he had collected and worked with. And so I think we're also left with some of these methodological questions around uh, which archives we're trusting and how there's maybe some inversion of what tests what. Uh, or who gets, who gets to write down what happened and have their version heard and taken as well. So Exactly. And then the last thing I was thinking of is Charlotte's point that there's already so much of this work going on, which echoes, you know, things happening at, when Paul Gilroy talks about conviviality and multiracial London that, I, that I've heard at places like Standing Rock, where there were simple rules about learning about the history of relations, human and non-human to the land, and other things like dressing simply, which I think of sometimes of how, how did the affirmation of difference play out when class is taken seriously? 
and 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 how his class lived out in a day-to-day way that uh, also contributes to these hierarchies of personhood. So these are some of the thoughts I've left with. Thanks. We've had a very participatory audience. Appreciate that. Um, and so really good to have some of my favorite and I think the brightest people uh, in conversation today.